Welcome to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got two great guests on the show today. Candor Bourne, Director of Conservation Partnerships with Friends of the Bonobos. And we've got Sean Wilmore from the Thin Green Line Foundation. Welcome, Candor and Sean, to the program. Candor, your organization, is my understanding, is working in the Congo, saving the Bonobos. Tell us a little bit about the work that uh, you're doing and uh, how you came to that organization. Great. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Our mission is protecting bonobos and their rainforest home. Many people don't know what bonobos are. They are one of the great apes, and they're actually our closest genetic relative. So we share 98.7% of our human DNA with the bonobo species. There's lots I could say about bonobos. One particularly interesting thing is that they are actually matriarchal. As a primate, they've maintained their matriarchal social structure. A few fun and relevant things about that that will tie into the big picture of the carbon conversation or the climate conversation and where we've landed as a species is that bonobos are actually collaborative um, and they like to share even outside of their immediate groups. Another fun fact about bonobos is that as a species, they are the only primate that doesn't tolerate coercive sex. We could talk more about that. They are dramatically understudied as compared to the more aggressive chimpanzees. So we feel like as a species, as closely related as we are, there's a lot that we have to learn from them about our human potential. So bonobos are endemic to the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, meaning that they're native and they only exist in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The DRC as a country makes up 60% of the entire Congo Basin rainforest. Um, there's six countries included in the Congo Basin rainforest, but 60% of it exists in the country of the DRC. And so I may have strayed from the fullness of your question, but there's a lot that we could talk about um, relevant to the climate conversation about the Congo basin rainforest. Well, I've often said that one of the problems that exists in our society overall is that we've had such a patriarchal society that it's kind of focused on uh, many things like war and creating more and more and more in our economy that we probably be well served to have a bit more balance in having women lead essentially a revolution towards equality throughout the world, which would probably balance our world out to be a more loving, caring, empathetic place versus obviously the wars that we're seeing sparked all over the planet are, are quite destructive and probably come from more male-dominated positions and and ways of dealing with conflict but uh that may be a story for another day but you know tell us more about uh, how this shows up in the bonobos and how their society works and why it's so important to preserve the congo basin rainforest for the environment so it's interesting because exactly all of the things that you just said are really the areas of focus for really being able to understand the importance of what bonobos have to teach us in terms of really our potential as a species. So I think that it's often thought that the patriarchal model, um, which is kind of the entitled 
exploitation model is inevitable. And bonobos are really here to show us that it's not inevitable, actually, that a cooperation model, a big picture thinking model where we are concerned with the good of all. So not just for our human species, but for all species. So in that way, our model of conservation um, is a community-based model. Um, we have currently about 120,000 acres of protected rainforest um, in the heart of the Congo Basin rainforest. That's established already, and we're in the process of expanding to probably over 200,000 acres. The Congo Basin rainforest is recognized as one of the most biodiverse regions of the world. So protection of bonobos in the rainforest serves also as broad biodiversity preservation. Also carbon sequestration, of course. The Congo Basin rainforest is sometimes referred to as the second lung of the earth. Of course, it's second in size to the Amazon rainforest, but it's actually um, has the highest level of carbon sequestration of all forests in the world. And that's largely due to actually the peat bogs. So that sort of takes us into a whole nother area. Let's talk about what are the threats to the Congo Basin rainforest and things that are being done to protect it and what uh, can the listeners do to kind of engage and uh, be a part of the solution? So currently the biggest threats to the Congo rainforest are really industrial plantations. So like monocrop agriculture, palm oil, rubber, and sugar, also large scale commercial logging. So that's the biggest threat. Of course, the biggest threat to bonobos is um, humans. So it is loss of habitat, but also the illegal bushmeat trade. Um, But in terms of the rainforest, I would say, you know, and what people can do, I think recognizing the importance of preservation of existing forests. So tree planting has become sort of a bit trendy and it is important, of course, planting trees all over the world is incredibly important. Reforestation is a, is a is an important aspect to focus on, but in terms of sort of bang for your buck, if you will, or, you know, impact, focusing on preserving existing forests and really supporting small local initiatives that are doing community-based conservation like we're doing is extremely important. Uh, We've seen a lot about the damage that can be done with traditional models of conservation that cut people out of the equation. Our model is really working directly in partnership with the local communities that have for generations had um, land management rights to the forest and we're working with them to formalize those rights and formalize the protected area Um, so it's really a collaborative process as opposed to a a top-down model of conservation so we exist as a small nonprofit our implementing partner in the drc is a much larger team they're directly boots on the ground involved at the project level. And I think the more that people get involved, of course, nonprofits survive by support from the broader community, both individuals um, and, and business level support. So that's, I would say, the best way for people to get involved is to, to seek out projects that are directly working with the people in the regions. 
That sounds like a great idea. Now, Sean, uh, you work with the Thin Grain Line Foundation. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work and, and how did you come to uh, working with the Thin Grain Line Foundation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt. That's probably a good segue when we're talking about, uh, Candace talking about boots on the ground. So I was a park ranger in Australia, um, which is just behind my right shoulder there. And I met rangers from all over the world who um, told me their stories, showed me their machete wounds, their bullet holes, um, told me um, tragic stories, but also amazing, inspiring stories. One thing led to another, and I started up the charity arm for the for the International Ranger Federation called the Thin Green Line Foundation. Um, and essentially all of our work uh, is focused around supporting the men and women who are rangers on the ground all over the world. Um, including in DRC. So I, I really look forward to talking to Kando after this meeting about how we might cooperate together to support Absolutely. you know their rangers in, in that in that region. Um, in fact, DRC has the the highest rate of uh, ranger deaths besides India um, in the world. We lost last year over 150 rangers in the line of duty, and so primarily Thin Green Line was set up to support the families and children of rangers killed in the line of duty. Um, usually by um, militia, poachers, uh, illegal activities, sometimes accidents and sometimes the animals themselves can, can cause rangers um, the loss of life. But there was no workers' compensation as we might have in some of our Western world for these families. Um, the families were left destitute, children kicked out of school, forced to work um, from, from very young ages um, and you basically put onto the scrap heap of, of humanity because or because their loved one was a ranger protecting wildlife that we all want them to protect. So, you know, essentially that's not good enough. As a ranger myself, connecting to rangers around the world, that's that's why I started Thin Green Line Foundation. Um, it's been my mission for the last 20 years is to to get behind not just those families. Um, so yes, that's a one of our four pillars um, is, is the Fallen Ranger Fund. But then to prevent those deaths in the first place by training rangers adequately, which is happening right now in the Amazon um, with Marcelo Segalova, um, we might speak to him another day, but Marcelo's right in there teaching uh, Indigenous rangers and other rangers how to protect their rainforest area. We, we do trainings in Africa as well through a program called Lead Ranger, which actually trains local rangers to be trainers themselves, leaving, leaving a legacy of, of trainers um, in situ um, to maintain that training. So not a tick box approach, but a real change maker. Um, and then, well, uh, you know, Sean, I, I, I hate to break into your, uh, you know, what you're saying, but we'll be right back after the break. You're listening to a climate change. Uh, this is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Sean Wilmore of the Thin Green Line Foundation and Candor Bourne, Director of Conservation and Partnerships uh, at the Friends of Bonobos. Uh, we'll be right back in just one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got uh, Sean Wilmore of the Thin Green Line Foundation, as well as Candor Bourne, who's with the Friends of Bonobos. And uh, Sean, we were just talking to you, and you were telling us a bit about what the Thin Green Line Foundation does to protect rangers all over the world. Yeah, look, I was just mentioning the four pillars of our work. One of them I mentioned in depth there was the Fallen Ranger Fund, so supporting the families and children of rangers uh, deceased in the line of duty. Um, but 
we also want to prevent those deaths. So lead ranger is one one of those where we train rangers to become trainers of their own fellow rangers and, and leave that in situ. And then there's the essential equipment that rangers need, everything from boots, mosquito nets, first aid kits, water filtration, even tents. Um, many rangers are out on patrol for up to a month at a time and they don't even have the basic equipment to do it. So um, there's that part. And then there's connecting rangers to each other um, and to the community and to the world um, so that there's much more support for rangers and to boost the morale of rangers. It's a very difficult job, and you know, Candle would know well from the DRC in the Congo Basin that you know it's they they can spend up to a month out there, maybe see their families for a day or two a month if they're lucky. Um, sometimes the travel home is too hard to get home in time, so they might get home to see the families once or twice a year. Um, um, we've had rangers come home, and um, you know, their young children don't recognise them because they've been in the field for so long. Um, so everything we do is about supporting the men and women um, in the front lines of conservation around the world so that they can actually then protect the forests like the Congo, like the Amazon, um, but also the deserts, the mountains, the lakes, every, everything on the front lines of conservation is is what we do with rangers. And we, we partner with people like Canada to say, okay, how can we get together? And that's a really important part of conservation too, is that this collaborative piece where, you know, it's not the elbows out like maybe some bigger players do. It's actually, you know, arms around each other and say, all right, how do we make this work together? Um, and that collaborative space, maybe taking a, a, a leaf from the Bonobos about uh, working together and not fighting. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the state of rangers around the world, particularly in the Amazon uh, and the Congo, and in terms of how quickly are we expanding the ranks of the rangers that protect the forest? Because uh, as Candor was saying, many of these areas are being destroyed by poachers and and the like yeah well unusually i have some good news to report that in the amazon where our partner marcelo is doing some training the government have agreed to employ more rangers in that in that region of the amazon to support nature's protection there that's not usually the case <laughs> um we estimate there's maybe around five hundred thousand rangers in the world um it's estimated that needs to be much, much more significant, probably in around about the 3 million ranges. So we're, we're well and truly under under par. But then you've got to look at the existing ranges, like where Candle's working in Congo, and she'll tell you probably the same, that many of the ranges don't have the res- The existing ranges, the ones working right now, don't have the resources to do their job. So that's that's a key focus of Thin Green Line and our partners is to make sure that the rangers existing have those key resources to get the job done. They have the key trainings to get the job done. Um, and, because, you know, the threats to rangers is just off the charts. I mean, you've got illegal mining, you've got illegal forestry, you've even got sometimes legal activities that, that threaten rangers um, that are sanctioned by, you know, maybe nefarious policies or politicians sometimes that's, uh, that in some corrupted areas may, may be part of the illegal activities or changing the laws that disenfranchise. And we, we saw in Brazil in recent history that was a big a big issue with the, the ex-president um, really turning his back on Indigenous people and rangers within the Amazon, and many, many suffered. And, and a lot of chiefs, especially during the COVID times, passed away um, yeah, with COVID, but deep in the Amazon, not just rangers, but conservation workers, many are actually taken out purposely um, in hits because they're in the way of of um, money making illegal activities of of various corporations or individuals or militia. Um, 
So Rangers, Rangers are really up against it, and they do need our worldwide support to make sure that they can get the job done. Um, it's, it's not an easy job, but they're passionate about it. Well, tell us, Candor, in terms of the problems in the Congo, we, we know that uh, there's wars. There have been a lot of wars fought in the area, kind of civil wars. You hear stories about illegal mining and, and children mining like cobalt and uh, things of that nature. Uh, I would imagine issues with uh, rangers there and, and whether or not uh, they're reasonably funded and or or whether or not, uh, you know, they're you have boots on the ground sufficient to protect these wild areas. Yeah, thank you. So I would say in general, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo is um, unfortunately a prime example of extreme inequity. So as you know, resource rich, if you will, biodiversity rich, um, carbon rich, all of the things that we ought to be really valuing. Unfortunately, they are, they also have a history of just absolute extreme exploitation. Um, And that continues in all kinds of ways. A lot of the conflict that you hear about and the mining that's happening is all in the eastern part of the country. Um, it's a massive country. The work that we're doing in the area that we're focusing on is in Ecuador province, which is in the northwestern region of, of the country. Um, so while there is still tremendous inequity there um, and extreme poverty, um, and you know, really you feel kind of the generational trauma of the extreme colonization that happened there. It still is is really palpable, you know, right now. That area is not as, um, the, the conflict that you, that, you know, makes its way into the news is not as prevalent in terms of direct um, crisis. But I would say that, yes, across the board, you know, in terms of projects and conservation projects, there's really a broad range. Um, And because there just really isn't internal infrastructure in terms of the government supporting protected areas um, or conservation initiatives, it's really up to to the projects. Um, And I think, you know, I love what you say, Sean, and the work you're doing with the rangers. We, so rangers is kind of a broad term, um, we, we refer to our team as forest guards. Really, it's the same thing. And I would say that, you know, there's a broad range of training and expertise. Um, and part of what we do a lot of focus on is to make sure that their approach is really community-based. Because um, I, And I really appreciate all of what you're highlighting about the needs of rangers Unfortunately, there's also some bad reputation of things that have been done in the names of conservation, you know, by way of, of rangers and guards and, and all of that. So, you know, we work really hard to mitigate that reputation and to ensure that our team is working in a real collaborative way with the local communities in the areas that we have the protected area. So in terms of government support, whether it's from the Democratic Congo or whether it's from the United States or the EU, are other governments and other organizations really taking effective action in the Democratic Republic of Congo to protect this rainforest area and this Congo Basin rainforest? And um, what can we do to uh, sound the alarms to get our 
governmental organizations more engaged? Yeah, so certainly I would say that that the Congo Basin it has really come onto the radar more dramatically in the last few years. However, some of the attention is coming in the form of opportunity grabs, if you will. So carbon schemes and those kinds of things aren't necessarily having the interests of the local communities in mind. So really the more that we can get out the message of the importance of community-based conservation in all rainforest areas, I think that's a relevant theme um, and definitely in in the DRC. And making sure that we, again, sort of the matriarchal big picture approach understands that humans are actually part of the ecosystem. They're not separate from. Um, And so they need to be considered part of the conservation approach. Um, So I think bringing that awareness and moving away from sort of top-down approaches that um, are good for some of the bigger NGOs and, and you know, receive that kind of government support. Um, but the, we really need to make sure that the benefits go to the local communities. Let me ask you a, a question on this carbon schemes that you talked about. What are you referring to? So the most popularized um, carbon scheme is, is um, the carbon exchange market, where industry can purchase carbon credits um, to offset their carbon footprint. Right. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. Uh, This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Candor Bourne with Friends of Bonobos on the show, as well as Sean Willimore from the Thin Green Line Foundation. And uh, we'll be right back in just one minute to talk to both of them about the great work they're doing in the Congo, as well as in the Amazon. to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got uh, Sean Wilmore of Thin Green Line Foundation and Candor Bourne of Friends of Bonobos on the show. And uh, Sean, back to you as far as the work that you're doing with the rangers in the Amazon in particular, how that can make uh, a difference in protecting these, uh, these ecosystems. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and um, coming back out from the Amazon, just more broadly, um, Candor mentioned community ranges or eco guards. There's many names for rangers around the world. Um, in parts of Latin America, they're called functionarios. Um, so it's about the the role of the ranger, which is protecting nature, or eco guard, or functionarios. They're all protecting nature, and it's really interesting that in the Amazon too, um, as is around the world, the fastest growing sector for ranger employment a really good thing is community rangers. So they come from the communities. Um, conservation creates employment for those rangers. In some parts of Africa, we see that the ranger's salary supports up to 27 people in their community with education and food and, and all sorts of positive outcomes from conservation. Um, obviously, then the standing of rangers is elevated, um, even through the lead ranger program where we train rangers in all sorts of skills, but including critical bleed control, so emergency first aid. The rangers apply that to local community members and half the lives they've saved in Africa through this lead ranger 
um, have been community. Um, and so the, the ranger elevates uh, in the standing of the community. Then you get more cooperation from the community with these community rangers. And it's the same for the Amazon. Um, the, the indigenous uh, Amazonian rangers, um, they're really underfunded, <laughs> under-resourced. They want support. So from a tribal perspective, um, you know, we, Marcel has been working with the Shingu and the Tukumake in, in uh, the Amazon, um, but other areas too. And um, the, the request of the tribal elders is to get more support for an Indigenous ranger type program. And really, to be truthful about it, I mean, Indigenous people, whether it be where I am in Australia, um, the oldest living culture in the world, um, the Amazon, the Congo, many tribal people have been, in a way, looking after nature in through through tribal practices so they have deep connection to to landscapes to the areas they live in because they rely on it for their water for their food for their sustenance and so over millennia um they've evolved techniques and uh, cultures and and um practices that, that actually are symbiotic with the environment not always perfect so let's not pretend that's the case but but a lot better than what we're seeing with with uh, the Western approach to say resource, what we call resource based areas like Congo and Amazon, um, where it's just extraction rather than living with the environment. So um, definitely that's the case in the Amazon. It's definitely the case from our work in, in parts of Africa, including Congo, but is that uh, working with community rangers um, to actually uh, increase that protection and Combined like what we call a two-way approach of kind of modern rangering, but combined with tribal um, techniques and and skills. Like Indigenous people, tribal people make and community people make the best trackers because that, that's what they do for their lives. Even ex-poachers make great rangers um, because they know the skills, they know the tricks, and they know how to catch other poachers. <laughs> so, yeah, there's community rangers is... The fastest growing sector, as I mentioned, along with uh, women rangers coming into the, the space. So it's two really great areas of um, of increased activity in the ranger sector. Well, that's uh, great to hear. And, and it makes sense that uh, essentially community development can be done with resource protection and that these communities would uh, thrive if we gave them the tools to thrive, which are to protect the greatest resources that they have, which are the natural homes and habitat that they've lived in for, as you said, millennium. So what are the things that are being done uh, as far as the Western world kind of uh, maybe contributing back to these spaces uh, in the Amazon um, to, to help protect areas that they've, uh, in many ways, create an extraction economy that's worked against um, protection. Yeah, look, I, I suppose the to back up what Candor said, the most direct way, um, the most effective way that I see things changing or being protected is through small, medium-sized NGOs like us working with local people on the ground um, to get the job done. Um, there's big world policies that happen, big world events um, under you know various banners, um, and they're great for signalling intent, and many people sign off on many, many things to say that this is our intent. But intent sitting in a document signed by officials isn't actually action on the ground. So where that where that rubber hits the road is is with people like Candor and you know and her friends of the Bonobos and Thin Green Line Foundation and organisations like ours that actually get to work with the people, and that's a really important part of conservation. Is we think of. Uh, as Candor mentioned before, we are an animal. We are part of nature. 
but where we support the people in that nature interface, the ranges or the communities, that's where the biggest impact's happening. Um, and that's the inaction of all of these uh, wishes at the, the high end of um, international governance where people sign off on these treaties and all sorts of things. It's where we support those direct actions on the ground. That's where we have the impact. The boots for rangers, the, the equipment, the training, the employment for local community in conservation. Um, the employment of women in conservation in these areas. Um, these are all really important direct measures. And so, yeah, you can read a lot of documents that people have signed that have never been enacted, or you can get behind organisations actually doing the hard work on the ground, like like Thin Green Line, like Friends of the Bonobos. And there's, they are there. So I think if people want to be engaged and actually make a difference, a real difference, get behind those organizations um, and get behind well, the local that, communities. Sean, I'm a big proponent of uh, getting behind organizations that are of modest size and uh, you really feel a connection as somebody who volunteers and gives to smaller organizations. I've had the experience of watching them grow and seeing the work they do firsthand um, is heartwarming. Uh, one of the ways that we got in touch with both of your organizations is through 1% for the planet and, uh, and the great work that they've done in terms of raising awareness and connecting to uh, thousands of organizations like the two uh, that you two are a part of and, uh, and watching them grow and, and thrive. So, uh, Kandor, tell us, tell us some about... Um, the work that you're doing, um, which will protect uh, the Congo Basin and the rainforest there, and, and what are the signs of hope that you see sprouting there? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for mentioning 1%. Of course, it's 1% for the planet that brought all of us together, as you mentioned. Um, and it's a great model um, for businesses to really get behind these kinds of initiatives and that is one of the things that gives me hope is more and more people realizing that um, you know one person can't do it all but it's through these networks and these ways that we can connect with each other um, and you know a lot of people are really interested in getting very involved locally which is really important but one of the things that we think is really important and that I am encouraged by is seeing more and more both individuals but also business initiatives in the West that have access um, to the kind of financial power that, that just doesn't exist everywhere, um, really getting behind initiatives in global hotspots and in areas of the world that are you know both biodiversity hotspots but also carbon sinks for us. We um, are both of those. So I didn't get to talk more about, about the peat bogs, but it is one of the things that makes the Congo Basin so important. And it's really only very recently recognized how important that is. But the peat covers only 4% of the whole Congo Basin, um, but it stores the same amount of carbon below ground as is stored above ground in the rest of the 96%. Um, so it's an incredibly vulnerable area that's relevant to all of us all over the planet. Um, so supporting initiatives like us that, again, we're on the ground, very community-based, and our whole reserve um, is in that area where the peat bogs are um, concentrated. 
So, you know, it, it both gives me hope to be involved with these kinds of initiatives, with businesses and individuals that really take a stand. And sometimes the most powerful way to take a stand is with your wallet, really, and sharing wealth, being bonobo, uh, you know, cooperating, working together, sharing, um, and making sure that we are keeping our sights on the good of the whole. Well, that's a, that's a very uplifting message. And I think the hope that I see there is that, hey, we haven't destroyed everything yet. We've, we still have some incredible nature out there, and it's not too late so long as we get involved, we get engaged, and really make the effort to, to help places that, unfortunately, we've in the past extracted lots of wealth from but haven't contributed as much to. So this is a chance for us to kind of Absolutely. give back to places that have been uh, places where a lot of taking has occurred and not enough giving. So maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit more in just the minute we have left in this segment regarding the peatlands in, in the Congo. Yeah, so um, again, as I mentioned, um, they cover just 4% of the whole Congo Basin, which is partly why they were just so recently um, recognized, but store as much carbon as the entire tree cover um, in the rest of the 96%. They're basically uh, swamplands, um, and they're decomposed plant material, and they store the carbon that otherwise would be released into the atmosphere. They store it beneath the ground. So it's, in, of course, the you think of swamps not necessarily as being tree covered, but they are. It is a swamp forest, and so there are. And what's important is to keep the trees planted, um, not to deforest the areas where the peat bogs exist in order to keep that carbon underground. Um, so protecting those areas is of utmost uh, significance to the entire planet. Now, what efforts are being taken to uh, protect those and what efforts are being taken to uh, probably endanger those? Yeah, so any development that happens in the areas where the peat swamps, the peatlands exist. Um, so like we talked about before, deforestation, whether it's for the purpose of logging or for the purpose of um, monocrop agriculture, um, even just putting in the roads uh, for those initiatives is incredibly risky. Um, and so again, the smaller based protective measures you know, we've established um, a provincial level protected area, which is basically like um, like we would have a state park in this country um, that that protects that whole area um, and makes it, you know, inaccessible for development and um, for initiatives like agricultural projects and that kind of thing. Well, that's great to hear. You're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Candor Bourne with the Friends of Bonobos, as well as Sean Wilmore with the Thin Green Line Foundation. We'll be right back in just one minute.
You're listening to A Climate Change, back with Candor Bourne and Sean Wilmore. Uh, Candor, I'm going to ask you the question first, which is, uh, if you were naming people to the Mount Rushmore of climate activists, uh, who are the four or so people that uh, inspire you the most uh, doing the work that you do? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a big question. I, I would like to nominate the nameless people, you know, the local indigenous people that often don't get the recognition that the leaders get. There are so many people doing such important work on the ground, protecting the environment, understanding that we are part of nature, that there's another way to approach uh, this beautiful and precious planet that we belong to, um, and that would never want their faces to be carved into uh, a rock, um, but just want to be respected and to have their views really integrated into the broader culture. Um, so that that would be my nomination. Well, that's a beautiful one. Thank you for that. And uh, Sean, I'm going to throw it to you to to have you tell us uh, who, who are climate activists that uh, are inspiring you. Uh, I really love Candor's answer because mine would be similar. It's the people that wouldn't ask for their faces to be recognized, but um, they would like and deserve the respect. And for me, obviously, that's going to be rangers around the world, um, the silent people doing the work on the ground, the action on the ground, risking their lives. And representative of that would be people like my friend John Mokombo, who was a ranger protecting gorillas and He's been shot and shot at and had rangers killed next to him. It'd be Samuel Loare, um, who's passed away in Uganda in Kadepo in the north of, of there. It'd be my friend Marcelo Segaloba, who's given his life to living in the Amazon and working with indigenous community rangers. Um, and probably one that's poignant right now is um, recognition of rangers and their sacrifices. Anton Mozimba from um, South Africa, who was uh, an elite anti-poaching rhino ranger, basically. And um, the criminal syndicates uh, actually you know, did a hit on him at his home uh, while he was at home with his family and, and took him out, killed him at his home. Um, and this is this is the silent thing that happens in our world for rangers and people that care about conservation is that they undergo this kind of um, uh, threat and, and sometimes that threat's carried out. So for all of those rangers that lose their lives, for all of those rangers that dedicate their lives, for all of those communities, then yeah, there'd be some representatives' faces that you could put up on the Mount Rushmore of climate activation and um, nature protection that would represent many, many people that, that do that. Well, uh, beautiful answers, both of you. I, I really like uh, the nameless and uh, not necessarily faceless uh, folks that are just not seeking credit or glory, but are just doing the work and uh, not expecting to get uh, their names shouted from the rooftops, but they're just doing the work. And that's, I guess, a call to action for all of us and certainly to myself to uh, say, hey, let's just go out there and do the work. Tell us a little bit, uh, Sean, uh, as far as stories of success and hope um, that you've seen and and what uh, what keeps you going. Yeah, great question, Matt, because it is in this um, field, um, as Candle will know too, it, it is trying and it is easy to, to want to give up. I mean, I've been there a number of times where you go, is this possible? Why should we keep going? Um and my inspiration comes from those rangers in the field that they've got it much tougher than I do. And um, I've been lucky enough to visit rangers in 80 countries around the world and be on the ground with them in those places. 
and they don't do anything but inspire me every time I'm with them. The dedication they have and success stories from those ranges, uh, the mountain gorillas in um, the Virungas area, which it borders DRC, Uganda, Rwanda. Um, when I first came into this kind of sphere of work internationally with rangers, I think there's about 400 to 500 gorillas left in the wild, mountain gorillas left in the wild. Today, because of the dedication of rangers, but community, and also got to give credit to government policy, but uh, and NGOs working all together, this collaborative space, I think there's now over 1,500 mountain gorillas in the wild, in the world. Now, there's sacrifice in there. Rangers have given their lives to it, um, lost their lives to, to that protection. The community have dedicated areas to it. Um, but where that interface with community and conservation has happened, we've seen success with the mountain gorillas. And that's true of many other places where we've been able to do our work in Kenya, in Africa too. Uh, poaching in some areas has gone down to zero where rangers have had that training and the community engagement. 300 rangers, a big life foundation, one of our partners, they have over 300 Maasai rangers. Uh, from the local community. They involve in education programs with the children, with conservation and normal education. They have predator uh, compensation programs. So if a lion takes someone's cattle, they're compensated. So that, that real community ranger interface is, is really an amazing success story of conservation. And the more we get behind that, I think the more success we'll see on the planet. So there is hope. I, I talk about this now with tingles down my spine, thinking of those positive examples and i'm about to go to mongolia um soon to hang out with um mongolian rangers who give their all in mongolia so wow there's some inspiring people out there we just got to get behind them (laughs) that sounds great and that is uh certainly inspirational to me to hear uh the success stories the mountain gorillas and in kenya reducing poaching to zero is is amazing uh, work so, Candor, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the stories of success and hope that you have uh, in working with the bonobos and and in the Congo. Yeah, so I'll share an example. Um, one of so last year we had our second successful reintroduction of a group of bonobos that was rehabilitated um, at the bonobo sanctuary called Lola Ya Bonobo and they were reintroduced back into the wild. So we didn't talk about this before, but the two main avenues of our programs is the sanctuary, Lola Yabonobo, where bonobos that have been rescued um, from the bushmeat trade are brought to be rehabilitated and cared for with the hope and goal of reintroducing them back into the wild. Um, So the first reintroduction happened in 2009, Um, And it was not until last year um, that the second successful reintroduction happened. So this group of about 12 bonobos was transported 8,000 kilometers back into the heart of the rainforest. And the goal there is both, you know, to sort of doing the right thing for these bonobos that have been taken out of their environment um, for bad reasons and um, now being able to release them back into the wild. And, you know, another part of that goal is to increase the in-situ population. So already from the two groups, um, about 10 bonobos have been born into the wild. And we're gearing up to do a third reintroduction early next year. Um, So the the goal long-term will be to do reintroductions every couple of years until hopefully 
there's no more poaching and no more rescues and it's you know the the sanctuary will not be needed anymore so what's the status of the bonobo population and uh, is it under threat and yes um, it's actually that's not a hopeful topic unfortunately um, bonobos are very highly endangered the populations were thought to be around a hundred thousand back in the 80s um, it's down to what's thought to be somewhere around 15,000 now. So with that trajectory, unless severe measures are taken, they're scheduled to exit the planet within three generations. And again, that's you know one of the highly motivating factors of our work um, to keep them here on the planet um, and uh, to make sure those in-situ numbers increase rather than continuing to decrease. Have you seen the rate decrease uh, drop or is the population continuing to drop as we speak? Yeah, so um, again, one of the things that's hardest about bonobo conservation is that um, the areas where the bonobos live naturally is incredibly dense swamp forest, as we talked about. And the DRC is incredibly under-resourced. So getting good, clear numbers and reports um, is really challenging. So we don't, we can't say for sure um, that there have been, um, that the numbers are increasing. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have anything conclusive to say on that unfortunately. Well, uh, Candor, it's been great having you and, uh, and Sean on the program. Candor, tell us where we can find your organization to uh, partner and connect with you guys. Great. So our website is friendsofbonobos.org. I'll say it again, okay. friends, friendsofbonobos.org. And, and we're Sean, also on LinkedIn uh, and Facebook and Instagram and all those good things. Okay, everybody, go out and follow friendsofbonobos.org. Uh, Sean, tell us a little bit about where our audience can find you. Yeah, similarly, online, uh, thingreenline.org.au, um, the AU being from Australia. But, uh, yeah, thingreenline.org.au uh, is the best. And, yeah, all the socials um, have things popping up there as well. Well, um, I think it's uh, extraordinarily important for all of us to be involved, to be engaged, connect to these great organizations, the thingreenline.org.au, as well as the friendsofbonobos.org. Go out there, donate to these great organizations, stay active, stay involved, because they're doing incredible work, and uh, all of us uh, have a part in it. So we can protect this amazing uh, these forests and the incredible nature that lives within them uh, by doing our part and staying active, staying involved.